Please take your Bibles and turn them with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 7. And while you're turning there, let me just say, welcome to December. Christmas season is in full swing now, and this is the time of year in America where perhaps Jesus is more popular and more talked about than any other time uh, in the year. Uh, in December, Jesus is sung about more than ever in our culture. In December, Bible verses are on display more than ever. In December, our neighbors blow the dust off of their nativity sets and they showcase them. In December, people who don't uh, normally go to church go to church. And, and, and if you're one of those this morning, I'm glad you're here and I hope you'll come back. Uh, even in our post-Christian culture with secularism on the rise, it seems that every year Jesus in some form makes a bit of a comeback. I'm not sure if that's a good thing, not if the form in which Jesus comes back in is a distorted form, if it's a caricature, if it's an incomplete version of Jesus, because comfortably embracing a caricature of Jesus isn't simply ill-advised, it's deadly. Because Jesus said, unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. And you will never find a verse like that on a Hallmark Christmas card. But really, it is a verse that should be put on display everywhere during this most wonderful time of the year. Because simply thinking about Jesus during Christmas isn't enough. Talking about Him isn't enough. Giving Jesus a few props during Christmas and, and, and having a few sentimental feelings about Him isn't enough. What you think about Jesus is critical, and what you believe about Him is a, a matter of life or death. It has eternal consequences. And this question, who is Jesus really, is at the heart of our text today. And when we discover the answer and, and we embrace Jesus for all that He really is, we will lay hold on the most wonderful news and the most wonderful treasure and the best gift that you could ever have this Christmas and forever. So let's find out more about that. Why don't you stand with me now in honor of the reading of the words of our great and glorious God. This is John chapter 7. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week, starting in verse 25, and we're going to read on down through verse 52. The Apostle John writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? That we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that 
we will not find him. Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one has ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Let's pray. Father, this is Your holy and inspired Word, and I pray that You would help us to to treat it this morning with all care and reverence. Father, give us ears to hear. Give us a heart to receive what Your Spirit would have to say to us this morning through this Word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. It was the most wonderful time of the year. The most popular of all holidays, a time of great joy and celebration in Israel in the first century. It was the Feast of Booths, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. Rabbis used to say that if you've never rejoiced at the Feast of Tabernacles, that you have never really rejoiced. It was a week-long, intense, very emotional celebration. It was a harvest festival. It was a time of thanksgiving for God's provision and care for them. And folks from all over Israel would go up to Jerusalem to celebrate, and the people would erect these little booths, uh, these little tents or tabernacles. They'd be everywhere, uh, on the streets, in the alleys, in the temple courts, uh, and they would live in these little tabernacles for a whole week. Many would build these tents on the flat roofs of their homes and live in them. Uh, this, this was something that especially the, the, the children appreciated. They loved the Feast of Tabernacles. And I can imagine even my own seven-year-old saying, Dad, we, we get to live on the roof in a tent for a week? Sign me up. It was a great time. It was like a national campout. And this celebration was specifically a time of remembrance of God's past faithfulness to them long ago, when God powerfully rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt to take them to a special land of their own. But between deliverance from Egypt 
and settling in the promised land, Israel lived outside, in the wilderness, in tents, and God sustained them with miraculous food, with bread from heaven, and He provided water for them, even making water gush forth from a rock. And so the Feast of Tabernacles, Israel was to recall this event uh, in their history by living in these, in these little booths. They were reacting the experience of their forefathers. Now, as you saw last week in verse 17, Jesus arrives at this feast halfway through the feast in the middle of the week, and He starts teaching at the temple, and there's great tension. A lot of people are talking about Jesus, but everybody's afraid to talk openly about Jesus because they're afraid of the religious leaders who oppose Jesus, and they are plotting to arrest and kill Him. Now, Jesus has already clashed with them once in verses 14 through 24. We saw that last week. But it's not over, and the tension is increasing. And at the heart of this whole discussion is the most important question that can be asked. Who is this man? Is he really the Christ? Is he really the long-awaited king that has come to deliver his people? And what kind of king? What kind of Christ is this? Like today people then had all sorts of distortions and all sorts of caricatures about what the Christ should be like. But in our text today and in subsequent chapters in the Gospel of John, we're going to get further clarity that clears away the confusion about Christ and reveals somebody that is better than we could have imagined in our wildest dreams. And in our text today, we see at least three things about Jesus that reveal to us who He really is. And the first thing that we see in our text is the shockingly offensive Christ. The shockingly offensive Christ. Look at verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. The Jerusalemites are dismayed at the apparent lack of action from the religious authorities And and they ask at the end of verse 26, can it be that the authorities really know that this man is the Christ? Is that what they really think? Now, they don't think that, as we'll see shortly. But regardless, these people of Jerusalem, they already have their minds made up and they reject Jesus. And why do they reject Jesus? They reject Jesus because Jesus does not fit into their category of what the Christ should be like. He doesn't meet their expectations. Look at verse 27. But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. There was a a popular belief among some of the Jews that the Christ would appear suddenly, as if out of nowhere. You really wouldn't know his background. You wouldn't know his origins and where he came from. But they knew about Jesus… He was from Galilee. He was raised in Nazareth. He's the son of a carpenter named Joseph and a girl named Mary. He wasn't some sort of mysterious person. He was a common man like the rest of us. Now, this issue of Jesus being from Galilee was a stumbling block to others as well. Look down at the second half of verse 41. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem? Now, these people here are closer to the mark than the people in verses 25 through 27. These people here, they knew the Christ wouldn't appear out of nowhere, like some people thought, but that He would be from Bethlehem. 
And so they're confused about this, but, but if they would have looked closer at the prophets, they would have seen that not only is Christ linked with Bethlehem, but the Christ was also prophesied to have a special connection with Galilee. As Isaiah chapter 9 talks about, the prophet Isaiah foretells this, that God has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone, and that light was Christ. And, and just a few verses later, Isaiah tells us more about this Christ. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. So here in Isaiah 9, the Christ, within just a few verses, is connected both with Galilee and with the Davidic line from Bethlehem. But it also appears that, at least for some, Part of the offense about Christ's connection with Galilee was not simply due to scriptural ignorance, but due to prejudice. There was an arrogant prejudice that, that many of the people of Jerusalem had towards Galilee, and there was also specific prejudice that many had towards Jesus' hometown of Nazareth in particular. Way back in chapter 1 of the Gospel of John, we saw how Nathaniel, though he himself was from Galilee, even he, he balks at the idea of the Messiah being from Nazareth of all places. And he, and, he, and he balks at this idea, not on the basis of Scripture, but on prejudice. When he says in, in John chapter 1, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Or if you go down to verse 52 in John chapter 7, when Nicodemus tries to defend Jesus, look at how the religious leaders respond. Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. They use Galilee as a slur, as an insult. And then they declare that no prophet has ever come from Galilee. By the way, they were wrong about that. There were a few Old Testament prophets from that, that region. But Jesus' origins are a stumbling block to many people and an excuse for dismissing him. They're judging by outward appearance and, and not making a right judgment, which runs contrary to Jesus' warning back in verse 24. But because Jesus doesn't fit into their specific expectations, it becomes a very easy excuse to dismiss Him. They can sidestep dealing with Jesus and the hard things He's saying because they find certain things about Him offensive, certain things that don't line up with their view of what the Christ should be like. And the offense of Jesus only increases. The Jews thought that the Christ would come and support them and bring judgment upon the godless heathens. Instead, Jesus turns around and says probably the most shocking and offensive thing that he could say in verse 28. You know me, you know where I come from. I'm reading it that way because I think Jesus is being sarcastic because they, they just talked about how they know about Jesus and where he comes from. He goes on to say, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, 
for I come from him, and he sent me. Jesus turns around and tells these extremely religious, outwardly pious people that they are like the Gentile pagans and that they do not know God. And this triggers a very explosive response in verse 30. The Jerusalemites try to arrest him, or as some translations put it, they're trying to seize him. This is an aggressive response, and things are getting very intense. And Jesus' point here is that he knows God, he is from God, he has been sent by God, therefore to reject Jesus is to reject God, ergo they do not know God. And this is one of the most significant themes that reoccurs in John's gospel. Whatever you do with Jesus is what you do with God, period. Here's a few more verses, and they're all from John's gospel, and they all talk this way. John 5, 23, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Or how about John 5, 42, In 43, I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. Or, John 6, 45, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Or, John 8, 19, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. Or, John 8, 42, if God were your Father, you would love me. So, if you want to help someone know if they know God, present to them Jesus. I mean, the biblical Jesus. Because virtually every religion and worldview has some sort of version of Jesus, and they're all different. Present them with the real biblical Jesus, the Son of God, who is God, one with the Father, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who was crucified, who rose again, whom belief in is required for salvation because there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, that Jesus. If you present that Jesus and they receive Him, they know God. It's, it's really that simple. You see, you can go out into the world and you can talk to people about God in, in a generic sense. And you can talk to them about Jesus without defining who He is. And and you know what? You can get a positive response about that. It's really easy to get a positive response about Jesus when you kind of do it in a generic kind of way. Almost everyone has nice things to say about Jesus. That's very important to remember in your own personal evangelism. The question is, what Jesus are they responding to? It's a good question. I remember once talking with a man about Jesus and he eagerly affirmed Jesus. He said he had great respect for Jesus, but as the conversation continued, it was clear that he did not believe that Jesus was God. He, he did not believe that Jesus was the only way to salvation. It, he believed that, that man was innately good. It's amazing because everything that he was saying was contradicted by the gospel of John. You didn't have to go even to other books of the Bible. Just stay in the Gospel of John. Everything that he was saying was contradicted by that. In John's Gospel, Jesus claims to be God. In fact, in John chapter 8, we'll see this shortly, soon, in a couple weeks, Jesus takes the divine name of God and applies it to Himself. In John's Gospel, Jesus claims to be the only way to salvation. John 14, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No man can come to the Father but by me. 
In John's gospel, Jesus denies the innate goodness of man and, if anything, highlights the utter depravity of man. Jesus says in John 6 that unless the Father draws a person to Jesus, unless God does a powerful miracle in the heart of a sinner, the sinner can't come to Jesus. And when I started unveiling to this man the real Jesus, especially when I started talking about Jesus' statements about judgment and hell, you can guess where that conversation went. This man got very uncomfortable, and he withdrew from that talk because the real Jesus was very offensive to him. This is nothing new. We find the people in John chapter 7 withholding their belief in Jesus because Jesus did not fit their ideas, and they found him offensive. But friends, the most important question we need to present to the world today is not whether, not whether or not Jesus is offensive. That's a given. But the bigger question is, is Jesus telling the truth? Because something can be offensive to you, but that doesn't automatically make it false. But in an age and in a culture where personal feelings are more uh, more important than objective truth, in an age of hypersensitivity and easily hurt feelings, Presenting the real biblical Jesus will often result in extreme offense, and it'll be a big hurdle that you're going to have to face in your evangelism. And yet, friends, presenting the real Jesus is the greatest act of love that you and I can do for a person because the real Jesus exposes a person's sinfulness and their great need to know God. And and folks, that is the first prerequisite for them finding true peace and true forgiveness from God. That's what they need to know. And so we meet this offensive Christ, but we also meet in our section the sovereignly unstoppable Christ. There is no question that the Jewish leaders want Jesus dead and are plotting to kill him. And this is why in verses 25 and 26, the Jerusalemites are perplexed over the authorities' inaction regarding Jesus. Why aren't they arresting this man? Why isn't anybody doing anything about him? The reason why no one is doing anything is because no one can do anything. Did you you pick that up as we were reading through that? Did you get that sense there about the complete powerlessness and inability of Jesus' enemies to do anything despite their opposition to Jesus? Again, Consider the Jerusalemites themselves, going back to verse 30. After Jesus says to them that they don't know God, these guys, they don't want to wait for the religious leaders, and so they try to take matters into their own hands. But the text says they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. Why did no one lay a hand on him? Why couldn't they do this? There's a lot of them. There's one of him. This should be really easy. You're given the reason why. Because his hour had not yet come. Keep that in mind. Keep that phrase in mind as things begin to escalate further through this section. In verse 31, we see people believing in Jesus. Now, verse 32 calls them the crowd. They're to be distinguished, I think, from the people of Jerusalem. These would be pilgrims from other regions. and They would have been less under the sway of and less sympathetic to the religious leaders. The text says many of these believe in Jesus. Now, it's hard to know based on what we've seen in prior chapters, if this is genuine or superficial faith. But regardless, this crowd is beginning to respond in a a positive way to Jesus, and the religious leaders, they get wind of this, and they get very concerned, and they finally decide to flex their muscles in verse 32. The Pharisees 
heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. And yet by the time the chapter is done, is he arrested? Nothing happens. Look at verse 44. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Despite all of these people wanting to stop Jesus, Jesus is still free. And he's doing and saying whatever he wants. It's, it's somewhat humorous, really. You go down to verse 45. In verse 45, these underlings, these thugs that the Jewish leaders sent to capture Jesus, they come back empty-handed. Verse 45, look. It says, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? Right? They're, they're thinking what I just said a while ago. There's a lot of you and there's one of him. What, what's the problem? The officers answered, no one has ever spoke like this man. The guards are rendered powerless in the overwhelming presence of the person of Christ, and they're unable to lift a single finger against him. Now again, this all comes on the heels of verse 30 that tells us that Jesus' hour had not yet come. In John's gospel, this theme of God's divine timetable and Jesus' sovereignty over his life and over his mission keeps returning. Jesus is never at the, at the mercy of his enemies. Jesus is in control of his enemies. Jesus is in control of everything. We see this in, a, in, in other places in the Gospel of John, for example, in chapter 8. It says, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. But then when you get down to uh, chapter 17, Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. The hour has come. There was an appointed time that Jesus would die, and Jesus knew that. And, and nobody could touch Jesus until that time. In John chapter 19, you have Jesus standing before Pontius Pilate, who's about to give the order for Jesus to be executed. And, and Pilate, in, in his, his audacity, says... Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. (laughs) So again, we see God's absolute sovereignty over the situation. Pilate is not in control. The Pharisees are not in control. This mob in chapter 7 seeking to seize Jesus is not in control. God is in control. Jesus is in control over everything. Jesus says something absolutely remarkable in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. This is amazing. He says, I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down to my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. Folks, that is complete, utter, raw, sovereign control. So never see Jesus as a wimpy, helpless, tragic victim. Jesus is continuously triumphing, and he gets his way every time, every time. Jesus says as much in verse 33, going back to chapter 7. He says it in verse 33 when these guards try to arrest Jesus. He says, I will be with you a little longer, 
and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. This is Jesus' way of saying, you want me gone now? Guess what? I'm not going now. I will be here as long as I want to be here. And, and then when I leave, it will be in the time and in the manner of my choosing, and there is nothing that any of you can do about it. Jesus is telling them in advance exactly how all this is going to go down. And no one is able to silence Jesus or stop him from doing whatever he wanted. Now, this has incredible implications for the church, doesn't it? Since the very beginning of Christianity, the world has not lacked the resolve to silence the church or to try. From, from the earliest days of Christianity until this very moment, the world has tried to silence the message of the gospel and stamp out the church. Powerful men, evil men, world leaders have tried, entire empires have tried, and yet these evil men and these evil empires lay now in the dust, people barely remembering who they are. That's how it's always been, and that's how it will be until Jesus returns. That little despot in North Korea who is persecuting thousands of Christians will soon be a footnote in a dry, dusty history textbook, completely irrelevant in spite of his efforts to be relevant. And yet the message of the gospel, I have this prediction. It doesn't take a rocket science to figure this out. The message of the gospel and the expansion of the church will continue as the name of Jesus continues to be proclaimed as powerfully as ever in more places than ever before. And there's absolutely nothing that that despot can do about it in Asia. There's nothing ISIS can do about it in the Middle East. Just last week, I met a brother from Iraq, Max. He visited with us at Harbin's last week. I hope you got to meet him. And he was, he was telling me of the fierce persecution that Christians are facing there. And, and yet, even in the midst of a place like that, somehow the gospel gets to Max, and guess what? He's a follower of Jesus. And there are stories like that, friends, all over the world today. How can this be? Because Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Nothing can prevail against the church, not because you and I are so great and awesome and powerful, but because the sovereign, unstoppable Jesus is Lord of the church and nothing happens to the church outside of his permission. This should provide you, brother, this should provide you, sister, with some great encouragement and some great hope. It should provide you with great peace, not just in regards to God's sovereign hand over the life of the church, but over your life personally. The same God who superintended the events of Jesus' life the same God who governs the big story of history governs your little story as well. Not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of the Father, Jesus said. And so, friends, we can say with the psalmist, with confidence, I trust in you, O Lord. You are my God. My times are in your hands. Now, in this incredibly charged, very tense atmosphere in John chapter 7, Jesus does something absolutely stunning, and here we are introduced to the spectacularly generous Christ. Those poor guards 
that the religious leaders sent to capture Jesus, they come back to their bosses without Jesus. They come back absolutely stunned. They, they, they said, nobody has ever spoken like this man. Now, we don't know everything that Jesus said, but we know the most important thing he said. And it's the, it's the climactic part of this chapter, and it starts in verse 37, where the text says it's the last day of the feast. John calls it the great day of the feast. This was the moment everybody had been waiting for all week long. It was the grand climax of the feast. Tens of thousands were crowding the city streets, waving their lulabs, which was a combination of a palm, a willow, and a myrtle tree, and that was symbolic of the, of the different stages of their ancestors' wanderings throughout the wilderness. So all, all these folks would gather at the temple, and the priest would hold out a golden pitcher, and he would walk to the pool of Siloam. And everyone would follow the priest, singing the Hallel, the, the, the Psalms 113 through 118 praising God while waving their lulabs. And at the pool, the priest would, would dip his pitcher into the water while the people shouted aloud, Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3. We read it at the beginning of the service. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So there would have been singing. There would have been dancing. There would have been great music, just, just people praising the Lord. And they'd all follow the priest back to the temple through the water gate, the, the ram's horns, the, the, the shofars blasting in the background, and the priest would take that pitcher of water, which recalled God's miraculous provision of water to their ancestors in the wilderness, and it also looked forward to an eschatological end times hope where the Lord would, would pour out His Spirit upon His people, and God's Messiah would usher in a new age of blessing that would cover the whole earth. That that priest would ascend the ramp up to the altar, and he would, he would pour that water out beside the altar. It was an incredible moment. And when he had done this, then he would raise his hand, and the whole congregation would suddenly fall silence. Now, we don't know exactly the moment that it happened, but if you wanted to make a climactic proclamation during the climactic moment of this feast, this would be a pretty good time. And in verse 37, the text says that Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Imagine the scene. Jesus is doing here, by the way, exactly what he did in the previous chapter. In chapter 6, Jesus had the people recall God's provision of manna, of bread, to their ancestors in the desert. And he, then he turns around and he says, I am the bread of life. And now, here, six months later, at the Feast of Tabernacles, which recalls that miraculous provision of water in the desert, Jesus turns around and reveals himself to be a provider, not of H2O, but of living water. Jesus is showing them, he is showing them that their physical hunger and their physical thirst is pointing them to something much deeper. Ultimately, what we eat and what we drink and what we digest in our stomachs isn't the solution for our deepest needs. 
There is a spiritual hunger. There is a spiritual thirst. There is a deep craving that people have, and people try to satisfy that thirst in all kinds of ways. In Jeremiah chapter 2, God describes His wayward people as doing something very, very foolish. They had God, the most wonderful, beautiful, all-satisfying treasure in the universe, and they traded that treasure in. Why? Because they thought they were going to get something better that would meet their needs, meet their needs better than God could. And God says in Jeremiah chapter 2, my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Then it goes on to say, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. I wonder if there's anyone here who has turned away from God as the all-satisfying, thirst-quenching fountain for their soul. Are there broken cisterns in your life that you are clinging to? What is it that you are banking your hopes in for ultimate satisfaction and peace and fulfillment in life? What is it? Is it materialism? Boy, that's a big one in December in America. Is it materialism? That's a broken cistern. It's not going to work, friends. It's not going to satisfy you in the end. Is it pornography? That's a broken cistern. There's a little bit of a buzz that comes with it, a little bit of titillation, but that's a broken cistern. Some of you know what I'm talking about, and it'll leave you empty in the end. Romantic relationships, broken cistern. Successful career, broken cistern. Physical health, broken cistern. Religious accomplishments, broken cistern. Fulfilling your ministry dreams, whatever that might be, broken cistern. A peaceful, harmonious marriage, broken cistern. Kids that turn out well, broken cisterns. To make anything outside of God the ultimate, to ignore the fountain that God is, and to stick your head in broken cisterns for satisfaction and peace in life is not just foolish and vain, it is idolatry. And it is spiritually suicidal. In the end, it leads to ruin. And yet, praise God for this, and yet, God is merciful. And how does a merciful God minister to thirsty people? He offers a drink. And so, he says, In Isaiah 55, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. In other words, this is free, actually. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. 
And here now in John chapter 7, this is amazing. John chapter 7, Jesus Christ comes. He stands in the temple. And what does he do? He makes the same offer. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Friends, Jesus is identifying himself with the speaker in Isaiah 55. He is proclaiming his deity, and he's telling them, I am the one who all along has been making this gracious offer to you, and now I am here in the flesh to tell you once again, come and drink, be rescued from your soul-killing thirst, and be satisfied in me. Notice the generosity of this great God. Who is allowed to come? Who's allowed to come? Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, think about that. Jesus is speaking to a crowd of thousands. You've got all kinds of people in there. You've got obviously moral people. You've got obviously immoral people in that crowd. Religious hypocrites. Prostitutes. Liars. Lawbreakers. In the crowd, you even have Jesus' enemies. These same evil, murderous, twisted, wicked people who are plotting against Jesus. Jesus looks at all of these people, all of them, and says, if any of you thirst, come to me and drink. What a word of encouragement. Sometimes people don't know if they really can come to Jesus. I've had people tell me, Deemer, you, you don't know about the things that I've done. You don't know about what's in my past. I'd be ashamed if people knew. What about me? And I'd say, what about you? Stop making it about you, first of all. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts. And so the biggest question, friend, is, are you thirsty? Do you recognize your need for salvation and forgiveness of sins? Do you want to come and be cleansed and be forgiven and be renewed and made whole by Jesus? Then Jesus says you are qualified. And all you have to do is come to him. But how? How do you come to him? How do you drink from Jesus? I mean, obviously he's speaking metaphorically here. Jesus answers that in the next verse, in verse 38. Whoever believes in me... As the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So, believing in Jesus is drinking from Jesus. Believing in Jesus means receiving him for all that he is. So, so discard the useless Jesus of your imagination and trust in the real Jesus and the redemptive work that he has done, and you will be saved, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 39, now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And we can talk more about the ministry of the Spirit as we get further on into the the Gospel of John. But, But after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, he would not be present physically with believers anymore, but instead he would send the Holy Spirit to indwell all believers to empower them, to strengthen them, to minister in and through them in an unprecedented way. Just as God saved Israel from slavery in Egypt and then sustained them with water until they reached the promised land, so God saves us, and during our time in the wilderness, in this life, 
He sustains us with the Holy Spirit until we reach our promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. And this blessing of the Spirit, Jesus says, is available to anyone who thirsts and who comes and who drinks. Now, how how can that be? How does Jesus offer this life-giving water that meets our deepest needs? How, How does Jesus become like a rock in the wilderness, like that rock in the wilderness long ago that gushed forth water for a thirsty people? Answer, in the same way that the rock provided water. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus 17. That's going to be near the beginning of your Bible. It's the second book in the Bible. Easy to find. Exodus 17. In Exodus 17, Moses is leading the people through the wilderness. And the people are growing thirsty, and they are grumbling, and they are complaining against Moses, and more importantly, against God. And they are beginning to doubt that God is really with them, and that God instead is going to let them die of thirst in the desert. Now, since their miraculous deliverance from Egypt, the people have been consistently rebellious against God. They are contentious. They lack faith. Uh, they, they, are, they are fickle. In reality, folks, they deserve to die, to drop dead in the wilderness. They deserve God's immediate judgment. But God does not annihilate them out of existence in that moment. Instead, he has Moses do something very strange. Look at verse 5. Verse 5, God says to Moses, "'Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go.'" Now, that's strange. God says, "'Take your staff, the same staff that you struck the Nile River with, that that same staff that is associated with God's judgment against the people of Egypt. Now, if anyone should be struck by that staff, it should be Israel. Instead, look at verse 6. God says, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. You see what's going on here? God says, I'm going to stand on that rock. God becomes associated with that rock. And Moses smites the rock with the staff of judgment, essentially striking God himself. And in that striking, life-giving waters come forth. And in that, he saves the people, and he also answers the question, is God with us or not? Later on in the Bible, in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul writing about the wilderness wanderings of Israel, says that they all drank the same spiritual drink, and they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem, and His name was Emmanuel, God with us. Emmanuel came into a world full of sinners, grumbling and complaining, against God, in hostility towards God. And you would think that Jesus Christ, the holy God, God in the flesh, would come down to destroy grumbling religious, or religious, yeah, sure, religiously rebellious sinners like us. That He would come down and that He would strike us, that He would smite us all with the rod of judgment, because that's exactly what we deserve. Instead, 
Jesus, six months after his offer of living water at the Feast of Tabernacle, goes to the place of the skull, goes to Golgotha, and he himself there is smitten, struck with the rod of God's judgment in the place of his people, as was foretold by the prophet Isaiah when he said that we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. The sinless Jesus dies instead of sinners who deserve to die, paying the price for sinners. He conquers death. He rises again on the third day. He ascends to the Father, and He offers the life-giving waters of the Spirit to all who trust in His name, all who place their hope in His sacrifice for sins, all who by faith embrace Jesus for everything that He is, who by faith turn away from the broken, empty, unsatisfying cisterns of this world and who instead follow after Jesus Christ. This is the real Jesus of Christmas. The Jesus who tells us the hard, offensive truth about who we are, about our sin. But the Jesus who is so sovereignly unstoppable that He is able to save even the worst of rebels, and who loves us so much that He generously offers abundant living water to all who believe. This is our God. This is Christ. This is Emmanuel, God with us. Come to the water, come to Christ, and drink. Let's pray. Father, we have seen wonderful, glorious things in your word this day. Help us to believe it, to love it, and to live in response to it. In Jesus' name, amen.